Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I wanna thank you for listening, and I wanna ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton and contributing editor to the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. This week, uh, we will examine the controversy over the renewal of PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, and some economic tomfoolery on both the minimum wage and antitrust law. But first, I want to go to the Vatican, where a lot of people are going to the Vatican for the Synod. Uh, we'll have Emily explain a lot of what's going on here, but I'm going to start with the lead here from a piece from the New York Times published this morning, headline, Vatican Assembly puts the church's most sensitive issues on the table. And perhaps, Emily, you can just play a game with this of you know, how well does this New York Times coverage represent the actual issues at heart for this synod. Uh, again, I will give you the lead from this New York Times piece. Throughout his decade as leader of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis has allowed debates on previously taboo topics and set in motion subtle shifts towards liberalizing changes that have enraged conservatives for going too far and frustrated progressives for not going far enough. This month, starting on Wednesday, Francis's desire for the church to discuss the concerns of its faithful, even the most sensitive topics, will culminate at the Vatican in an assembly of bishops from around the world that will allow, for the first time, lay people, including women, to attend and vote. The issues under discussion will include priestly celibacy, married priests, the blessing of gay couples, the extension of sacraments to the divorced, and the ordination of female deacons. Detractors are wary of the very nature of the assembly known as a synod and have criticized it as a bureaucratic talkathon or as an insidious Trojan horse for progressives to erode the church's traditions under the cloak of collegiality. Supporters see a chance to put into practice the Pope's bottom-up view of the church as a more inclusive institution that upends the traditional hierarchy and forces bishops to listen to and work with their flock more. So, Emily, with that said, uh, I will toss to you, tell our listenership, uh, what is this synod? What is the idea of a synod on synodality, if I'm saying that correct? I feel like I am mispronouncing the title of a police album every time I say that. Right. Uh, what is what is going on in the Catholic? Um, what is up with the Catholic Church, um, Emily? I would love a synod and synchronicity. Yes. Quite Exactly. Don't send don't send it so close to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how I feel about the whole thing. Um, so what the synod on synodality is, we've used synodality as a buzzword, or Pope Francis's um, administration has long used synodality as a buzzword about taking the church as it is and 
um, shifting its view of like a clericalism centered view, um, priests and, and administration and, and turning it back to the laity and back to the periphery is a good word that he usually likes to use. And so this is the culmination of a three year, a, a three year listening church. Um, that started apparently at the parish level. If you are in a parish, you may not have known because it wasn't super well communicated back about three years ago. But they've been having meetings starting at the parish level and bubbling up to, you know, the diocese level and then into um, various communities and countries and groups of bishops. Um, and now all of that is being taken to Rome and they're going to discuss the needs of the people in Rome. Um, and as far as making changes to the Catholic Church, possibly, but I think um, the New York Times kind of had it right when it said it was a bureaucratic talkathon. Um, it's not super clear that any of these issues are on the table. In fact, just this morning, it's Monday, and, and just this morning, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Sarah, and a number of other cardinals announced that they had actually sent a letter to the Pope asking, what is on the table? Is women's ordination on the table? Is um, liberalizing certain dogmas on the table? Um, and uh, they got back not really a official document more of an inner office memo <laughs> um, that said we don't we don't really know what's on the table here and the, the truth of the matter is probably not very much is going to change on these big issues so everybody has been talking about women's ordination but pope francis has been clear that he's not interested in talking about that um the blessing of same-sex couples that's something that's happening in germany in what is widely recognized as a schismatic church. So it's highly unlikely that that is going to be an issue addressed here. Um, uh, communion for divorced and remarried Catholics, that's something that came up years ago in Amoris Laetia. Um, so that could be on the table. That is one of the things that could be on the table. Uh, but generally speaking, this is going to be a lot of talking about what is needed at the church level. And a lot of people are unsure of actually what's going to happen. But in addition to some of the more visibly progressive priests like Father James Martin, you do have Bishop Barron who will be there. You have a number of conservative theology experts. Um, so we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see what exactly will come out of the synod. But it doesn't seem like it's going to make major changes, and hopefully I don't regret saying that. If you could, Emily, I, I want to ask you to expand on two things, uh, and then Dylan, I'll, I'll go to you for your perspective. The first is, uh, can, can you articulate for us the difference between a synod and a council, and particularly with regard to what power or authority uh, a council would come with, I believe there's only been 21 in the history of the church, um, versus what we are widely expecting to come out of this synod. And then the second one, as you had mentioned, uh, the blessing of same-sex couples uh, happening in German Germany and what you said is largely considered to be a schismatic church. And you say that it's not on the table for conversation. 
again, that strikes me as the kind of thing that would seem rather important to talk about if, you know, an entire, the Catholic Church within an entire nation is acting in a schismatic way. That seems like the kind of thing that might be worth talking about. Why is it not on the table? general reasons. So uh, I will address the the uh, idea of a synod as opposed to a council. A council is convened specifically to make doctrinal changes or to review doctrinal changes, to review dogma. A synod has been a favorite thing of the Pope Francis era. Um, these are collections of advisors many of whom are bishops and cardinals. Now we do have lay theologians. Oh, my daughter is quite bored by this. Um, the, the lay theologians will join this synod. We've had synods in the past, um, and we had one most recently in the Amazon. Many people remember the Pachamama controversies and all of that that happened uh, several years ago before COVID. That was a synod on the idea of potentially allowing priests in third world countries and places in, in the missionary church, whether they could get married or we could welcome married priests into the priesthood. Um, but synods like that one and mostly probably like this one don't really turn out much more than advisory documents that then would be taken to a council to make those official doctrinal changes. Now, the best you can really hope for with a synod is sort of like the synod is the friends we made along the way. Um, and that's what this, this final document probably will say is, you know, the real synod is the love and connection between all of our lay people and dioceses across the world, and we are a listening church and will continue to be so. Um, we don't expect, like I said, major doctrinal changes, but then the Pope Francis's papacy has been marked with a number of sort of off-the-cuff situations. Um, Traditionis Custodis comes to mind. Um, where we don't expect major changes and then they come down from the Vatican. So I, I hesitate to say not to expect anything, but, you know, if I were to say what you should expect, it is a letter that says the real synod is the friends we made along the way. Um, until, in terms of Germany and the, the possibly schismatic church in Germany, um, one of the things you need to understand is the German church gets gets money from the government and that money is dependent on how many people attend the German church. Um, and now the German church is looking for a way to get more people in the doors. And the way that they feel to do that is to liberalize dogma on their own terms and say, we will bless same-sex marriages. We will accept more liberal teachings in terms of the sanctity of life. Uh, and they've been doing this for a couple of years. It's been back and forth a few years. But then most recently they declared, yes, we will do this. They had their own synod. That synod decided they will liberalize dogma. And then just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they started blessing same-sex marriages, not conducting them, but somebody might get a partnership, a domestic partnership from the government, and then they do the blessing on the end. This would typically be considered schismatic. We would, this is a massive departure from dogma um, within the Catholic Church. Um, but we haven't seen a whole lot come out of the Vatican. 
so far. We have, we have, you know, while we've seen the Vatican crack down on, say, Latin mass Catholics in the United States, they haven't been as willing to be as vocal and as, as specific when it comes to Germany. The understanding is that Germany is basically in schism, but there's no declaration thus far. So um, we will be watching the Synod and Synodality to see, you know, are Latin mass Catholics being included as much as, say, you know, German Catholics? Uh, your description of the synod does sound redolent to me of uh, the great Thomas Sowell's quip about uh, a committee being the lowest form of life known to man, um, that it is going to be a lot of talking and uh, we'll have to see if anything meaningful comes out of it. You know, Dylan, um, what, what is your perspective on all of this? Oh, well, this is really helpful because uh, I, I went into this, I think, with a little bit of a, a misconception on the difference between a council and a synod. Uh, so uh, I think... I was going to try to draw a comparison to my own church. I'm Greek Orthodox. Uh, conciliarity is kind of our way of making, uh, you know, dogmatic decisions. Um, there is no one with the equivalent authority of the Pope uh, in the East. We have uh, nine to 14 patriarchs, depending on who's counting. Um, and uh, I always tell people the upside of that is I don't have to care about what any of them say. Um, and uh, so what this reminds me of is more like the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, which every year in the summer here at Calvin University has their, their synod. Um, and now I don't know that lay people, they might be invited to attend, but they don't get to vote. I think you have to be an ordained minister to vote. Um, I'm so sorry for any uh, Christian Reform listeners uh, if I get any of these details wrong. Um, but they will very often uh, have things where they'll motion to discuss something in a few years. Right. Um, and that's what this reminds me of. A synod on synodality is like having a meeting about meetings. Like we're going to have a meeting to talk about the nature of meetings and should we have meetings and what are their significance? And it's this sort of thing that's like, could you just talk about the things you want to talk about instead of talking about meeting about the things that you want to talk about? Are you telling me that it's possible this synod could have been an email? <laughs> you know, and it could have been an email, quite yes. honestly. It could have been just one of those Google documents that you click the link and you go in and you just answer a bunch of questions yes. and it comes out in a form. And then they could have taken form and made a papal, you know, letter about it. It really kind of makes a meeting about meetings. It's the lack, and the lack of efficiency <laughs> that's really what's uh, offensive so, here. So the other side is, I, I will say, uh, I don't know if this is encouraging or not, but you mentioned, okay, there's been 21 official councils from a Roman Catholic point of view. That's actually not true. There's 21 that the Roman Catholic Church counts as ecumenical. There's only seven the Orthodox Church counts as ecumenical. They're all, in fact, before the Great Schism. Um, but there are hundreds of councils in the church his, church's history. It's just only a certain number have, in hindsight, been regarded as ecumenical. Um, in our, in my church, again, a few years ago, they tried to have a great and holy council, um, and they did it wrong, in my opinion. I actually wrote a blog post on, on Acton's blog about this, um, that they were kind of like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to have an ecumenical council, but then they couldn't even get, like, all the patriarchs or representatives from all the patriarchates to show up. So they were missing like three. Um, so it really wasn't even ecumenical in fact. And certainly the decision was kind of wishy-washy. They just made a few kind of social statements that didn't have any dogmatic authority to them. It wasn't really the reason the council was supposed to be convened in the first place. And what they missed is the fourth century, uh, and this is what I point out, in the fourth century, we got two ecumenical councils. For those who don't know, we got the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople. So that's 325, 381 for those keeping track. Um, 
in between, they were so they're trying to solve things like the creed. That's the the Nicene Creed as you know it started in the Council of Nicaea. Really, the final version, uh, well, at least the one that we use, uh, came from the Council of Constantinople. You guys added a little half a word later, um, and that you know, great schism, yada yada. Anyway, um, but. But there was hundreds of councils, and there were, you know, it became a point that historians were almost like even contemporary historians were joking about, you know, bishops rushing from city to city, uh, traveling around to have yet another council over this sort of stuff. Um, and the way I look at it is, we got some great and holy councils or synods because we threw a lot of darts at the dark board, and we got two bullseyes. Um, so if you really care about synodality. Um, and synods, I would say you probably need a similar sort of thing. And it sounds like there has been some local um, examples for better and worse. Um, and, and you're definitely going to get worse uh, as well as better in the process. But if, if Pope Francis really wants a more synodal church, wants more participation of the laity, again, our stuff is more about bishops. So think of it more like a senate. Um, in fact, uh, for several years, as far as synods go, um, through the whole Russian Empire, there was no patriarch of Moscow, there was a holy synod, and it was constitutionally equivalent to the Senate. Um, and you, you, the Con Constantinople has also had a syn synod of bishops, which is kind of like a Senate for the patriarch. Um, and so it's been more bishop-focused, uh, whether it be a synod or a council. Um, the laity have a role in whether or not they accept the decisions. Um, so uh, Anyway, I could get in, on and on and on into that. I don't think people should vote on as many things as they should vote on in general. Uh, we, we all know this. I've, I've hammered on this in terms of politics, but I think it's very much true in terms of church politics. Um, the whole point of having a bishop, as far as I'm concerned, is that someone else will be in charge. Someone else will know how this church is supposed to work and not me, right? I'm a layperson. Uh, that's not my vocation. Um, I need to be a good Christian. Um, I... I need to care about what I believe and believing rightly. Um, but I don't know that I should be the one making the decisions. Um, and I don't know that it's particularly fruitful to ask people to vote on stuff in that sense. Um, so I think people have bishops, they should be the representatives, send them to talk about it. Um, so that's kind of my outsider's viewpoint. Um, I think some of the issues raised in that New York Times article are certainly very serious issues. You know, as Emily mentioned, as you mentioned, maybe there should be a synod on things like um, ordination of women deacon, deacons, there's a history of that in the church, deaconesses. There's some mentioned in the Bible. So what, what were they? There's an answer to that question. Well, how did they function? Should, is that something we need in the modern world? Um, that's a great question. Or um, married priests. Eastern Rite Catholics, you can still a married man can still become a priest in the the Catholic Church. Um, not to mention in the Orthodox Church. That's our pra practice as well. You can't become married if you're already ordained, but if you are already married, you can become ordained. So that's something that I think the Roman Catholic Church could revisit. Um, Same-sex marriage, that's something that there's a very clear historical answer about. It's a no. <laughs> you can't really revisit that one. The moral teaching is clear. And that's what the problem becomes, is that there's so much confusion. And you look at the New York Times lead there, and, and it sort of makes you believe that these things really are on the table um, and that decisions on these issues will be made. And I think that's kind of a hallmark of Francis' papacy is there is a lot of confusion because there's a lot of people who want to define Pope Francis very specifically. And he's really hard to pin down because on one hand, he is going to talk more directly about things like capital punishment and environmental stewardship. 
Um, but what does that mean for the average layperson? And that's, I think, where people start to get confused is, is what he's saying on these issues, you know, is it specifically doctrinal? Is it a change to dogma? Are we going to go back to Evangelion Vitae where we say, you know, capital punishment as it exists is not on the table for Catholics. However, we're not going to say capital punishment is on the equivalent of abortion in, in terms of a social issue or a life issue. Um, I, Catholics are very confused right now. <laughs> and, and I think especially when you go online and you have these very engaged online personalities, do they? it has to be this way or it has to be that way. Um, or you cannot be part of the synodal church because you go to the TLM, so you have yeah, the traditional Latin mass, so you've made the decision to depart from the synodal church, so you cannot be part of this. And then you have other people who are saying, well, you know, you've been around from the since the 70s. You've been around since, you know, felt banners were first invented. You cannot be part of this church. This is about a younger church, a growing church. Um, and And Catholics are kind of at this fork in the road where you have people who are still around from Vatican, post-Vatican II, who are saying it should have been like this. You have people who are coming up through the ranks in seminaries and filling churches with their kids who are saying it should be like this. Um, but the Synod doesn't really address those issues. It seems to address a lot of issues that are important to theologians and issues that are important to bishops and issues that are important to Pope Francis. And those aren't necessarily issues that are important to people in the pews. And and so I think the Catholic Church is struggling with that a lot. Um, and it's also coming at the same time as we're dealing with other issues of clericalism, like the Father Marco Rupnik. Um, those issues are coming to a head here in the Vatican as well, issues of forgiving a sex offender and reinstating him, um, a sexual abuser and reinstating him. So there's there's a lot of questions that people have about where Pope Francis stands on a lot of these issues. Um, and I don't think we're going to get many answers about that. So hopefully what the Synod is, is uh, the last word on some things, a clarification on some things, and not to very specifically, dogmatically, you know, change doesn't, you know, go for the dogmatic changes that we're all fearing will happen. Um, if it comes out of this that it isn't that big of a deal, maybe we can all just sort of move on and figure out where we stand. But I think um, the Catholic Church has a lot of issues, and this may not be the way to, to solve it. Emily, I have two questions I want to ask you that I think I can essentially merge into one here. The first one being, since we mentioned it, uh, while ordination of of women priests is is almost certainly off the table, uh, do you see an expanded official role for women within the church, both being on the table of the synod and being something that is in the future of the Catholic Church, which I think I can also tie to the other question, which was uh, referenced in that New York Times lead that I read, which is that there are people who view this synod as some kind of a Trojan horse for a more progressive view of the church that is often ascribed to Pope Francis. Well, you're, you know, do well to note that he is a hard guy to nail down. Um, there is this view that this could be a you know, again, it, it shouldn't have the, the, the weight and power of a council, uh, but yeah. I've read concerns that it may essentially just try to act like it does 
uh, whatever comes out of this has the pretense of seeming like it has that kind of authority. So first, if you could talk about the potentiality of an expanded role for women within the church, as well as, you know, I guess, do you share those concerns of this being some kind of a Trojan horse, or at least do you think that those concerns are valid? So to answer the question about ordination of women, I'm not sure about deaconesses. That has sort of come up in the last couple of weeks. Pope Francis has spoken very clearly on the issue of women's ordination. Women will be not ordained, will not be ordained to the priesthood. This is also something of a dying concern. So women's ordination was really a thing when I was in high school and I was in college. There were people my age who had joined this. Primarily, the people who are interested in women's ordination came of age in the 70s and 80s. They're a little bit more liberalized um, than the current the current crop of women, I guess, in the church. There is a lot of discussion about what women's roles are in the church. And I think part of that comes from the pushback that you see from this sort of patriarchal um, Protestant idea of traditional families. Um, that's also a very online thing, the whole trad wife movement. Um, but you do see a lot of Catholics embracing it. And so there's a tension on where do women fall and are, should women be highly regarded in the church? Should they be theologians in the church? And I think the answer has always been yes. I think the the, the Catholic church has been far more welcoming to women than other denominations, other aspects of Christianity. Um, but I don't see women's ordination being a thing. I do think that a number of places like America Magazine have tried to make it a thing in the last couple of weeks. You've seen a lot of push to put this online, like we're going to talk about women's ordination. And yet the Vatican and the Synod is like, uh, no, that's actually not really on the table. And we already said that it wasn't. Um, in terms of the Trojan horse, I think these concerns are valid, but I think that that is partially the fault of the Vatican itself. I think we've seen a lot of anger out of the Vatican toward the American church, toward the traditionalist movement, which it defines as a purely American movement, um, which it is not. It's very much the people who are going to church in France, the people who are going to church in the UK, the people who are going in Africa and Asia, they're very much on the traditional Catholics. Latin American Catholics happen to fall in this very much so. Um, I do think that the Vatican has an idea of what the synod should be. It wants people to come to Rome to say that the laity wants a more loving and tolerance and inclusive church, I do not think that's going to happen. I do see that there are a lot of cardinals who are concerned. I think Burke and Sarah this morning here on Monday, they said, we want answers from the Vatican. We want to know exactly what's on the table because we are concerned that these questions are going to come up. And if they're asking those questions, I think it's fair for the laity to ask those questions. That said, we do have people like Barron, who will be going over, Bishop Barron, who will be going over. Um, and these are not small, diminutive people who will shy from confrontation, particularly in these meetings. So, and we do have a lot of people who are going over who are critical of the Pope's handling of Father Rupnik. Um, one of the female theologians who will be on the board actually released a letter yesterday saying she was very concerned. 
Um, so I think that while these questions are valid, I don't see that they're going to pan out, or I hope that they're not going to pan out the way that the people who are most afraid think that this is going to happen. Um, like I said, I fully believe that we will have the synod on synodality, and in, in a couple of months, we will have a letter that says, we are all friends. We will continue to be a listening church. This was nice. Um, see you see you down the road at some point. Um, more concerning is the second part of Amoris Latia that's supposed to come out. We know that that caused a lot of issues because it talked about divorced and remarried Catholics, sort of buried down deep. Um, and it's possible that this encyclical could have a change. So I actually think that that's probably where a lot of the concern should focus. Well, and if that uh, does indeed transpire, then we shall certainly be back here discussing those developments. But I think this would be a good point to move on to our second topic of the day, uh, which, uh, again, I will read from a New York Times piece that is out today about PEPFAR, which it's very possible that you have not heard of PEPFAR. Uh, PEPFAR is the – let me make sure I get it correct here – The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which was a uh, program that was developed under the George W. Bush administration. Uh, I'll read here from the New York Times piece. For decades, the U.S. has bankrolled global efforts to fight the spread of AIDS, saving tens of millions of lives. Congress has extended the program on a bipartisan basis since President George W. Bush first created it in 2003, at least until now. Congress is gridlocked on a bill that would reauthorize the program known as PEPFAR. Lawmakers passed a spending deal on Saturday to avert a government shutdown for 45 days. Good job, guys. But that legislation did not reauthorize the AIDS program. Without reauthorization, parts of the program expired over the weekend. If Congress does not act soon, organizations that deliver life-saving drug treatments and other forms of support to HIV patients could have to curtail their work. And some specific measures could lose funding, including one that provides care for orphans and other vulnerable children. The reasoning that has been given for why uh, Republican senators or senators and congressmen have been in opposition to the renewal of this program basically boils down to an argument over NGOs and fungibility that a a number of the non-governmental organizations that administer the money for PEPFAR are also organizations that either advocate for, facilitate, or do abortion practices. Now, the argument would be that these, you know, this is a federal program. There are a whole lot of strings attached to the money and the people who execute uh, the process of moving the funding actually into these countries and the work that is done there. Uh, I I do think that the work of PEPFAR has been incredible. If you have followed the story of what has happened with AIDS and HIV in Africa over the last 20-some years, it really has been incredible. And and for people who are particularly snide about the legacy of President George W. Bush, uh, undeniably to me, one of the biggest parts of his legacy is going to be this work uh, to reduce the AIDS crisis that was uh, in Africa 
in the early 2000s. It really has been quite incredible. Uh, my, my wife at one point in time worked for World Vision and went over on a trip to Africa. And one of the things she came away really impressed with is just how uh, beloved George W. Bush is in a lot of places over there, particularly for this kind of work. Um, but this does come down primarily to a concern over uh, abortion and the role of NGOs in the administration of this kind of a program. And while I, I, I just cannot confidently say that they are wrong about the – entirely wrong about the fungibility argument. I mean, look, the fungibility of money is the fungibility of money. If you have an organization that does you know, abortion work but also does the kind of AIDS relief work that we are talking about here, um, there, there is something to an argument that says providing them a whole lot of funding in one area means that other money that otherwise would have gone to that can be diverted into the other kind of work that you don't want to fund. My problem with that is, is on some level, you can say that about everything, with almost anything that any kind of NGOs do, which I, I could be an argument for having more NGOs that are single purpose, that only do one thing so that we don't get into this kind of you know, this is an international version of a very domestic argument over the funding of Planned Parenthood, the pushback to uh, conservative critiques of funding Planned Parenthood is to say that they do, you know, all of these other uh, provide all these other women's health services. And it is a completely reasonable argument to say you could also have an organization that provides all those kinds of services that aren't abortion, but that also does not provide or facilitate abortions. And we would have not no argument over this, but a lot a very different argument over the public funding of those kinds of organizations. Um, so I, I, I understand on some level the concern, but when you actually do dig in and understand the strictures that exist within a program like PEPFAR, it, you know, there are plenty of elements within the law that dictates what money can and cannot be used for. So if you want to get beyond the kind of base level objection of fungibility of money, which is a real thing, um, I, I don't think it merits the kind of concern here and to me is just redolent of the dysfunction that we see in Congress and the lack of a willingness amongst particularly Republican members and people on the right, especially on this new right, to think in any kind of internationalist terms that don't want to see American America project either power or influence on the international stage. Um, you know, this is a, a a good program, not just from a humanitarian perspective, because it has saved millions and millions of lives over twenty some years. It is also kind of a good thing, uh, I think, for the United States to be benevolent in this kind of way that, you know, we are a nation in a very generally speaking, comparably to other nations of the world, good financial and economic position, have the ability to provide these kinds of programs. And I think it is a good thing that we have done so. And personally, this is an editorial opinion of me and me alone here, um, hope that we can see this program renewed. Dylan. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to distinguish between programs like this and other kinds of international aid. You know, a lot of like anti-poverty aid uh, has unfortunately gone to corrupt governments, uh, been not used for its purposes, or even when it is used for its purposes, uh, it ends up perpetuating poverty because it's not actually implemented in a way that respects economic reality. We did a whole documentary on that. We did do a whole documentary called The Poverty Inc. and a whole series uh, uh, called Poverty Cure. We would recommend that. Um, but 
Fighting disease is not the same. This is something you can do very effectively. And one of the points of that documentary series um, and documentary is that that kind of aid is great for emergencies, really bad for development. Disease is an emergency. I mean, it's in the name. This is one of the few times a government program's name actually (laughs) reflects the reality that it's addressing. Well represents what it does. Um, It it can work, you know, spreading vaccination for, you know, smallpox, eliminated smallpox, right? Like the same sort of thing, like antiretroviral for HIV, AIDS can actually reduce and eventually, if if we keep it up, uh, perhaps even eliminate it, which would be amazing. It'd be something that we ought to celebrate in the streets. Um yeah, I, I want to jump in real quick yeah. just to add this uh, perspective again from this New York Times piece. There's no partisan dispute on one point. The AIDS relief program is a major public health success. It has saved 25 million lives equivalent to the population of Australia. In some countries, it has helped reduce the rate of HIV infections by half or more. How? The program funds healthcare services in more than 50 countries. It has helped build clinics that distribute antiretroviral medication for HIV, which reduce the risk of developing AIDS and undercut the, the virus virus's ability to spread. It has established testing centers to help catch the virus earlier, and it has encouraged other preventative measures such as safer sex practices and circumcision. Yeah. So, I mean, you can look at all across the continent of Africa in particular, but of course, around the world. I mean, I I grew up, I was born in 1984. I remember learning about AIDS in the 90s, and it was just sort of this death sentence. I mean, that was the, the, only, yeah. the only exception was uh, Magic Johnson. Uh, contracted HIV, um, and he had so much money <laughs> that he was able to to get the treatment. I don't even know. He may have even funded the development of treatments to the point where my understanding is he's, he's in fact, HIV-free today. Um, but that was, that was uh, a, a huge exception. Uh, it, was, it was a death sentence if you got HIV. It was, it was a matter of time before it would be full-blown AIDS, and you would not live long after that. Um, so the fact that this is something that is in any way treatable, and in fact has been so effectively treated in the last two decades, um, is, is huge. And again, you can look at countries, look at Botswana, look at South Africa, look at, you know, just rates of HIV, HIV mortality, HIV uh, um, identification, you know, testing, that sort of stuff, treatment. Um, it's excellent. Uh, and the, the trend is downward um, year after year after year. Um, so that's something that we should want to continue. Um, the concern with abortion is a real concern. Um, and it's something that we should always care about. And we should always care about mission creep with any big successful program or for that matter, unsuccessful programs. Um, so I I think that's fair to be concerned about. But to your point, Eric, I don't really see that as a huge danger here. Um, I would add that we work at a nonprofit. In fact, we get money not from the government, um, but from foundations all the time uh, that is earmarked. Uh, it has has you know strings attached is kind of the negative way of putting it. But it's we get a, a grant for a particular purpose. And if were we to use that money for some other person, so let's say we got money to make a new documentary and instead we use that to fund a personal pet research project of mine. Um, that would be a misappropriation of funds. Um, I don't know if we'd run afoul of the law, but at the very least, we probably would not be getting money from that foundation again. Um, and I can't imagine, uh, although I could be wrong, but I would hope the U.S. government is not uh, more lax than any of these given foundations. Um, uh, so I think if we're worried about that sort of thing, um, 
it would be better in my opinion as much as i again i support making sure funds don't go go you know taxpayer funds don't fund abortion in any form however let's just have a clause that says when we give money to anybody uh, it has to be used for a very specific purpose. Like make make that your thing that you rally around and that will solve the problem. So that's where the concerns coming in, though, right? Because the Biden administration has said we have a problem with PEPFAR. There is a problem with PEPFAR and that it is so it's so successful that it will eventually put itself out of business. At some point, we will no longer need PEPFAR. Um, and, and that's, I think, where the Biden administration is right now. Um, the incredible success. It is, is probably one of the most successful public policy programs in American history in terms of how we view public policy programs. Um, so the Biden administration has come along and said, we have to reimagine what PEPFAR means. And so does PEPFAR now, instead of meaning we give AIDS treatment, does it now mean we give contraception? Does it now mean that we have to put Planned Parenthood in charge of all of its family planning documentaries? Does it expand to include gender inclusivity? So there are concerns, I think, uh, in, in the sense that everybody always worries that when a a program starts to become successful enough that it's no longer needed, that things will start to creep into that program um, that concern everybody involved and that it becomes a way around controlling money to certain organizations and NGOs broad. So I think that's also where that's coming from. It's like, this is super, super successful, but yet it's so successful that now it's going to become a Trojan horse for other things. So I, I would just add, I, I think that's definitely the concern. And that that's where I think, you know, when we give money anywhere, we have to be very specific. Those, those earmarks or those, you know, um, strings attached are very, very important to be consistent about. Um, however, I would say like, this is a very successful program, but it isn't nowhere near uh, putting itself uh, out of out of being needed. So again, like Botswana, I believe the the HIV rate is one in four, which is down from like one in one in three, two, I think, you know, yeah. or something like yeah, maybe one in two if you go back far enough. Like I think, I think it was so, close to fifty percent. Like, it's, it's amazing. It's it's so like that's great progress. That's still twenty five percent of people, or yeah. at least adults, if not children too. Uh, but like, so it's still a huge need. In the world. So we don't, to, to your point, like, I, I agree, like, it, if the Biden administration is saying, hey, we got to rethink what we're doing with this, they are just flat out wrong. Uh, statistically, they are wrong. AIDS is a big enough problem on its own still. And it it deserves a dedicated program focused only on it. Um, so that would be my my opinion here is not that we shouldn't care about pro-life issues, but we should just care about AIDS and only AIDS with this program. <laughs> this is an AIDS program and $6 billion of that money goes to fighting AIDS. And I think that that is just fine. Like this is, that that is exactly what this should be is when we reauthorize this, we should not be like, we've repealed the Mexico City policy. So now that money can go anywhere. And, and, and you know, that's $6 billion. That's not a small amount of money. Yeah, and I, again, if there were those immediate concerns that we were seeing this money being directed to those purposes, which you know, to the best of my knowledge, and I, I welcome anybody to point out if I'm wrong on this, we, we have not really seen that. This is more of a theoretical concern, both over the fungibility right. argument and over essentially what Dylan articulated, which is the idea that, you know, or, or it was you, Emily, that articulated that you can um, 
at a certain point down the road, uh, and we see this problem with nonprofits all over the place, that ones that do actually get to the point of, you know, there's the quote is at uh, T.S. Eliot, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly won cause. Um, but as a, a nonprofit, your central issue, you can get to the point where you have come so close to essentially winning a total victory that one of two things either needs to happen. Either you need to scale back or shut down the operation of the organization or you get the mission creep problem where you start taking on other issues and doing other things that are outside of the original purview and the vision of the organization. Those are real things to be concerned about. But to your point, Dylan, we are so far from getting to that, to be having that kind of conversation now. And the irresponsibility, I think, can lie on both sides of it, as we talked about the way the Biden administration is talking about this is not helpful, but the way that Republicans are talking about this is not helpful either. And you would hope that we would be able to have a consensus on the idea that, you know, we re-upping this program because there's, one, it's incredibly effective, and two, there is still clearly work to be done there. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it comes up for reauthorization every five years. I mean, more things within the purview of the federal government should require these kinds of reauthorizations. So, like, at minimum, it's like, on one hand, I think it's a good thing that we are having conversations about reauthorizing these things, that it is not entirely on autopilot. But I would want the conversation to be a little bit more based on the actual merit and issues that I think are at heart there. So we will continue to monitor what happens there. We've, again, averted a government shutdown for 45 days, uh, but parts of this prep, PEPFAR program uh, have not yet been reauthorized. So we will keep an eye on that. As we now move on to our, our third topic, which I've got a couple things, two stories thrown together here, which I, I think we'll put under the banner of economic tomfoolery, or at least that's my perspective on them. The first of these stories, I'll give you a little bit of summary for both of them. Uh, the first is the institution in California. A new law in California will raise the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 per hour next year, an acknowledgment from the state's Democratic leaders that most, uh, that, uh, that most of the often overlooked workforce are the primary earners for their low-income households. When it takes effect on April 1, fast food workers in California will have the highest guaranteed base salary in the industry. The state's minimum wage for all other workers, $15.50 per hour is already the highest in the United States. And the second story is that Amazon is now facing a landmark monopoly lawsuit from the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission filed a long-awaited antitrust lawsuit against Amazon last Tuesday and asked the court to consider forcing the online retailer to sell assets as the government accuses big tech of monopolizing the most lucrative parts of the Internet. So we can deal with these, I guess, in that order. The uh, fast food worker one, 
this is one of those arguments we just have to keep having over and over again. Uh, it is a semi-frustrating one because inevitably the advocates for a higher minimum wage uh, will point back to all kinds of economic literature that says you know that the effects on employment or unemployment from these increases in the minimum wage are negligible or non-existent. But at the same time, of course, that they I, I imagine they would all stipulate, okay, twenty dollars. Why not 50? Why not 100? Why not 500? They understand the problem in principle, but the argument always is that the increment that it is being increased now is never going to be the one that marginally creates the problem that everybody who is opposed to these kinds of increases in the minimum wage fears. And also ignores just the obvious reality, and anybody can go on YouTube and you can find the videos of this. If you think robots and mechanization is not increasingly coming to fast food restaurants, you are fooling yourself. Um, I think it is entirely plausible that within the next 20 years, the vast majority of the work being done at fast food restaurants like that is going to be mechanized. And the roles for human beings in those fast food restaurants is going to be more of a computer science role than it is flipping burgers. Now, there are going to be impacts coming from that. There are going to be realities we are going to have to face in that a lot of those lower wage entry level jobs where you learn some skills. You know, the, the old McDonald's rule was that I think if you uh, if you start at the lowest level at McDonald's and stick around for two years, within two years, you'll be a manager. Um, but at minimum, you there's some important basic work skills that you learn, you know, showing up on time and learning how to do your job well. We're going to have to grapple with all of that. But these efforts to raise the minimum wage are going to expedite the mechanization of fast food restaurants. They are not going to do anything to slow it down. Uh, and we're going to have to grapple with those problems sooner rather than later. So why don't we pass it around about the minimum wage before we come back to Amazon? Yeah. Speaking of putting yourself out of business, I mean, the, the minimum wage is going to become something that, it, well, the restaurant show this year, they're the mix of restaurant show that takes place in Chicago. This is the first time this year that two things came out of that. One is a baking robot that can now decorate your cakes. The other is a fast food robot. And for the first time, there was a full assembly line of fast robots that can make burgers. You just input what it has to be. And there's one supervisor who then looks at exactly what the order is on your phone. And that's what's happening with your apps, right? So if you are in McDonald's in basically any European country, you order on the app. The app takes your order, it sends it to somebody in the back, your order comes out in a very specific location, and it has your number on it, and very seldom, other than making the burger, does any human being cut that order. And I think that that's where it's going, and this is going to speed that mechanization. Now, it's really nice for people to be able to make a living wage on anything, but that has impacts on the rest of the economy. You cannot be at a minimum wage for so long before you need to move up. And the more we raise that bottom, the higher the cost of living is going to get overall, too. So food gets more expensive. Supply chain gets more expensive. So it is a kind of a scary thought that, you know, all of us will be replaced by robots someday. 
but that day will be coming sooner than later, especially with AI. I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords. <laughs> uh, I'm not I'm not a Luddite in any way. Um, so it's hard. It's it's an interesting situation. So I have, a, I have a few thoughts. First of all, cost of living is generally higher in California, certainly in urban centers in California. Absolutely. Than most places yeah. in the country. Uh, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where cost of living is below average for you know, fun urban centers, I would say, across the country. Um, a few years ago, we had the combined uh, forces of uh, labor shortage and inflation to the point where the McDonald's by my house, my previous house, uh, was advertising, come work for us, $15 an hour and benefits. There used to be only a few years ago, an organization called the Fight for 15, mm-hmm. trying to increase the minimum wage in this country to $15 an hour. I think that's ill-advised for a lot of reasons, but we got there. They won. Uh, I don't think they should be happy, and I don't think they are happy. Um, they probably should have well, changed the name of their organization or chosen a better one. They won, uh, but not on their terms. Right. right. So, like, there was no federal legislation right. that moved the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, bad economic circumstances kind of took care of that for us. But it it should speak to undermine the argument for the necessity of increasing a federally mandated minimum wage to fifteen dollars when we have seen, you know, we, we saw that pay level rise and they still had problem getting workers. So clearly it is not just the money that is at issue here. Right. So the economists who tend to point out that, oh, you know, small increases in the minimum wage don't tend to affect the labor market. Um, there, there is some evidence to support that. Um, I think there's evidence to support that to the extent that the minimum wage was already below the equilibrium wage in the first place. So my question is, what is the actual minimum wage? Not the state mandated one, but the equilibrium one of the market. Uh, is this a meaningless increase? Um, is Are people already getting $20 an hour at McDonald's? Maybe they aren't, maybe they are, I don't know. Um, uh, but it is it's it's interesting. It's also interesting that it's targeted particularly at fast food. Um, so that means that there potentially could be other places in these same, you know, right next door to the McDonald's offering fifteen dollars an hour. Um, and suddenly you have the fast food saying, well, if we have to pay twenty dollars an hour, twenty dollars an hour, we need to get a lot out of this employee. Um, and so they can't it can't just be an entry level job anymore, uh, which would transform the nature of of the work there. and it and it does make them think about technological solutions. Um, and for people who feel upset about this uh, and say, oh, this is just greedy organizations, greedy, you know, fast food, whatever, it's really important, I think, and worthwhile to point out, Profit margins for food service in particular are very, very slim. And that includes big name companies like McDonald's. Uh, we're talking one, two percent a year profits, not revenue. Revenue, you can get this big number and it sounds like, oh, look how rich they are. No, profit, that is revenue minus expense, uh, which is if you don't make one of those, you can't stay in business. You have to start cutting things. Um, and so they don't have a lot of wiggle room. That's why they have to look into technological solutions. They have to say, well, look, if it's going to cost that much for somebody to flip our, flip our burgers, we could just invest in a robot that we don't have to pay an hourly wage. We have to pay a large upfront cost. Maybe we have to pay a maintenance cost. Um, so I, 
Um, that being said, I am pro-robot. <laughs> I do think they make our lives easier. Um, I think a lot of human betterment has come about through technological improvement, uh, whether it's in you know agriculture and manufacturing, um, and that also means food service. Uh, here in town, my wife mentioned that there's a there's a DNW in town, which she she said was like from the future. There is a robot that goes down the aisles and takes inventory. And it stops when there's a person that, you know, it can sense when there's someone nearby. But that's like, you know, the, this is happening anyway. It will get sped up if you raise labor costs because people can do math uh, if they have good accountants and they are a successful business. And they'll say, well, at this point, we, we should make that investment. Um, we should convert, you know, as many of our positions to automate it as we can in order to keep making a profit and staying in business and providing uh, to get back to it. Cheap food for people who really need it. So if you're like a single mom and your kid drops a lasagna on the, the floor and you're like, oh my gosh, or they just refuse to eat the thing you spent an hour making because they're picky or whatever. And you're like, all I really need is some chicken nuggets right now so I can put this kid to, the, to bed without an empty stomach. You go to the McDonald's drive-thru and you should never feel bad about that. Uh, it's an amazing service that they provide. It's an essential one. Yes, people can abuse it. You can be gluttonous, but you can be gluttonous anywhere with any kind of food. And I don't think we should just point the finger at fast food. Um, so I, I look at it as this huge social service that the business of fast food provides. It is the good of business, qua business. Uh, I wrote a whole thing about Chick-fil-A many years ago uh, now, uh, a few years ago now on, you know, the the... Social responsibility of Chick-fil-A is to make delicious sandwiches. Uh, same with McDonald's, same with everybody else. If they're not delicious uh, and they're not treating their employees well, they should actually treat the employees well. Uh, they're, not, they're not providing a clean environment. Yeah, you know, there should, they should go out of business, and they will because people won't want to eat there. Um, so we don't really need the government action. Um, so my, my conflict here is, you know, best case scenario, this means nothing because the equal liberum wage was already about $20 an hour anyway. Uh, worst case scenario, this is virtue signaling, which is going to accelerate automation, which really isn't that bad, but it's going to be bad for the people that are depending on entry-level jobs. It's going to mean fewer entry-level jobs, which really is more like teenagers. Um, people who need to start, who get, need to get some job history, are now going to have fewer options available to them. And that's a bad thing. It's not just fast food either. I think people are kind of focused on the fast food, but you do see these jobs disappearing at big box retail stores, right? So here in Nashville, almost everything in my Target is now being put behind glass to where you have to push a button. They're making it deliberately hard for you to go into a Target, you to go into a Walmart, you to go into other big box retailers to get items. And what that's doing is it's trying to shift people in a direction they were already going, which is we go and we put our car in a parking spot, we open the back of our door, and somebody else has shopped for that, and they put it in the back of our car, and we drive away. Um, that is much easier. It's far more convenient. It's easier for the stores, and it cuts down on shrinkage and loss prevention. So where you might have been losing uh, 3% of your profit at a store or 3% of your revenue, I'm sorry, <laughs> you just got through explaining it. 3% store-to-store revenue um, in shrinkage or lost, lost leadership, um, you are now losing zero of that because your employees are shopping, people who you are trust are shopping. They have a consequence if they do not do this correctly. 
Um, you see them just stores themselves trying to shift the culture on that. So I think that that it's not just fast food. You're going to see it in other places too. I want to punt on the Amazon topic because I want to be able to give that its due and uh, we are kind of up against our time, but I just want to add one more note on this, which is, uh, I think there is a place for legitimate political concern within these things that are transpiring. And that is we have these – we're in this period of economic transition. We're always in a period of economic transition because things are always changing and we have new uh, emergent hopefully. orders. Hopefully we are. <laughs> um, but the – you know, we're looking right now at the reaction of politicians on the left in raising the minimum wage in California. Gavin Newsom, widely seen as a future presidential candidate, the governor of California, uh, signing this bill to raise it to $20 an hour. The kind of new position of uh, the economic position of the new right um, in having concern for people, you know, the, the more traditional way we have seen this is kind of the J.D. Vance hillbilly elegy kind of concern that these places in Appalachia uh, that have been kind of a, a one industry town that that industry has declined or gone away and there's just nothing else that is really available in there. There is, to me, cause for political leaders to do something about that to help smooth out transitions for people in these kinds of places that have come on hard times. Uh, the answer is not, however, the kind of form that I see it taking too often, these arguments of kind of like economic Ludditism um, that wants to believe that we can somehow go back to the 1950s version of McDonald's and that we're going to just be able to preserve that forever into the future. You know, the, the, the joke who I, I actually I just heard it was Brink Lindsay, formerly of the Cato Institute, I guess was the first person to formulate this, that the left um, uh, the right wants to live in the 1950s and the left wants to work there. But it's now uh, to me increasingly true that the right both wants to live and work in the 1950s. Guys, it's just not going to happen. It is just not going to happen that you're going to bring back or be able to maintain perpetually into the future these economic arrangements. And we can always point out the cases where it makes it obvious that if you were you know, looking at the job losses in the horse and buggy industry, you're not, if you're trying to protect that, you're not going to get the development of the automobile industry. These things are going to change. We are going to have these transition periods. It is perfectly legitimate and I think, in fact, an important role of politics to bring to the table the concerns of people within those communities that have been affected in the short term of these long-term transitions. Uh, but the efforts to try to move us back in time are not going to be successful and are probably only going to be more harmful or at least just as harmful as the kind of efforts we're seeing in California to artificially raise the minimum wage for fast food work to $20 an hour. It becomes that thing. we had talked about this on Twitter, right? When yeah. we said, why doesn't, why doesn't humanity create masterpieces anymore? It does. Humanity creates masterpieces every heckin' day. But we don't think about it because we don't see it happening. They're not building massive cathedrals. You don't have a bunch of serfs that are out working for free, you know, building a cathedral in the middle of town so they have somewhere to go on Sunday. But you do have something in your pocket that you're using to engage online that has more power than the entire NASA operation that put a man on the moon. 
We just don't see it. And robots are just the next part of this. But, you know, we do build cathedrals. We just don't build them the way that we tangibly experience them from the past. My church does, but (laughs) (laughs) go to Dayton, Ohio. Go to the Greek cathedral there. It's amazing. It's like a little Hagia Sophia in Ohio. It's (laughs) this massive mosaic on the ceiling. Uh, The one thing I was going to add is we actually know how to help people in this position, people who are not the teenager looking for a job, people who are stuck in these communities that the big industry goes down or they're stuck in kind of fast food, where they need are human capital and social capital. Human capital are the skills and talents that you in particular can provide to any given workplace. Um, And those can be transferable, not just limited to one particular trade or something like that. Um, even if that's where your work experience is. And the other is social capital. That's the communities that you're a part of. Uh, that's You want to smooth the transition. People need friends. Uh, they need communities. They need religious organizations. They need associations. So that someone can say, hey, well, I need help in my factory, or I need help uh, in my office, or I need, you know, you have those, those opportunities available to people. Um, I don't know that there's a government program that can make those things happen. Um, so I don't know that the solution is, pos- is is policy, but that doesn't mean that there's no solution. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Emily. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.